That's in the air, this could be out. Diamond's underneath it, will he catch it? He's got good hands, he's got him, yes he has. Diamond's got him in the deep, having fumbled all night, he's taken the big one. Hello and welcome to Couch Talk. Today's guest is Mike Jakeman, who is the author of a new book called Saving the Test. He talks about the various challenges facing test cricket currently and the need for better cooperation between the different national cricket boards for continued survival of test cricket, amongst other things. Welcome to the show, Mike. Ah, thank you very much. You have a new book out, Saving the Test, about the uh, various pressures and uh, threats for the game of uh, test cricket and uh, you provide your ways around it. Let's begin with what got you thinking about writing the book and what kind of research went into it. Uh, what, what started me on the, the process of writing this was watching the England-India test series uh, from two years ago in the, the English summer. And this was a series that certainly in, the, in, in England there's been more anticipation about than any since uh, the 2005 Ashes. Um, India were uh, the best team in the world at the time. They had this incredible, legendary uh, batting lineup with Tendulkar, Laxman, Dravid, uh, Sewag. Um, it was going to be a, a real test for a really young, uh, up-and-coming England team um, with a really exciting bowling attack. So it was, it was going to be the, the Indian batsmen against the, uh, the English bowlers, the best team in the world against the kind of young pretenders. And, you know, I was really hoping as a, as a cricket fan, as well as an England fan, that this was going to be a series that really kind of captures the imagination of, of the country. Um, and it, it sort of did, but not in the way that I was expecting, because England obviously won 4-0. Uh, India were uh, a terrible, terrible team in that series. Uh, Raul Dravid apart, and uh, Zahir Khan, who, who bowled very well on the first morning before pulling up injured, uh, looked very promising as well. But, but other than that, there was very little resistance from India, and, and as a competitive spectacle, it was lousy. Mm-hmm. So I sort of had to think about this and, and why the reasons were that in, in India seemed so uh, tired and underprepared and, and just not in a position to, to contest what should have been a real showpiece series of test cricket. And before I really knew what I'd, I'd got my hands on, I realized that there was uh, a lot to be said, and I ended up writing a book about it. Mm. All right, so uh, let's get into the book then. Um, the segmentation of the book uh, I thought was pretty interesting. You know, you have a chapter on titled The Tour, and then you have the short game, technology, pitches, the fixers, and the broadcasters. So you identify, I guess, these are the ways that you go about saving the test, or these are the ones that putting the pressures on the test game. How did you decide to segment it that way? Um, I think the, uh, the the situation with with Test cricket is, is very complicated mm-hmm. um, because it's not like there is a single uh, threat to it. It's not like oh, if we eliminate the match fixers, then we've got a perfect game. Um, there are lots of different pressures coming from all these points that mean that. And I think this is probably my central point: is that um, the sport of Test cricket isn't broken at all. When you get two teams who have something to play for, mm-hmm. who are fit, uh, fighting. Um, then it works as well as ever. It's, it's as captivating as it always has been. The problem is all these things uh, in the environment in which test cricket comes about um, that aren't quite right and mean that too many test matches that we see now are played by teams with, uh, who are either uh, underprepared, tired, 
their minds are elsewhere. They're not earning what they think they should be earning. Um, administrators have made a mess of their schedule. You know, it's, it's the environment for the cricket isn't what it should be. And that's, I think, why I decided to structure it in the way that I did, picking apart each of these areas um, a little at a time to, to then hopefully by the end of the book um, readers have a, an idea of the sort of composite picture of where test cricket is at. Okay. It's an interesting thing that you just said, which is play is something to play for. Uh, I mean, let's take the example of the uh, Ashes that just got started, you know. Sure. Of course, it is the uh, most historical, traditional rivalry in cricket. And yet you had a bunch of the Aussie players, you know, the ones that are on the test team now, um, were playing ODIs in India not too long ago. Uh, whereas England team was in Australia preparing for the series. And also you have a whole lot of meaningless test matches. I, I mean, they played two test series or one-off tests, and even though there are more number of test matches being played these days, there is no context to the game except outside of perhaps the Ashes rivalry. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think this is one of the the really fundamental problems with, with test cricket at the moment is that it's extremely hard to follow. Um, partly as a fan to work out what the team is, where they're going, where they're playing, but also because the national boards mess around with the calendar so much, mm-hmm. but also in terms of building any sense of momentum when you swap the formats all the time and you're playing at home, you're playing abroad within the same half of the season. Um, on, on the specific uh, Ashes example you gave, um, it's, it, that's by no means the most egregious example of this, by the way. Um, <laughs> when, when, when England last went to Australia, um, they had an excellent uh, warm-up and they, they learned from the mistakes of the, the previous tour in 2006 when they, they didn't do anywhere near enough preparation. Australia were playing uh, a, a meaningless short series against Sri Lanka that finished about 10 days before the Ashes started. Correct. This time they've obviously been playing India, playing one-day cricket. I mean, it, the Ashes is... is the healthiest series going because it's played at uh, a good length, um, five tests, obviously, and in front of full houses in England and Australia. Um, that's fine. That's the series that you know, no one has any worries about. Um, it's everything else that, that we've got to focus on. Um, and in, in terms of the, the scheduling, that, that's a really sort of fundamental issue that we should be able to fix or the administrators should be able to fix. Um, very quickly, but we've seen again in the last year um, and, and indeed the last couple of months that uh, the BCCI in particular take a very liberal approach to their commitments under the Future Tours program, which is the, uh, the calendar that the ICC puts together to determine who plays who and when. I mean, they, they cancelled the, um, the tour to South Africa that we saw in order to have the uh, Tendulkar's final tests at home. I mean, Nobody would begrudge the man the spectacle, obviously, although it would have been nicer perhaps if, if those tests were more meaningful if they were played against uh, stronger opposition in, in, in the tour that uh, uh, India was supposed to be playing. Well, I have my thoughts on that, but you are the guest, so I'll ask you the question. Um, but even, let's go back to the Ashes itself, you know. Uh, you see f- uh, full grounds in England, definitely. But even in Australia, I think during the 2010-11, um, by the time the test matches rolled around to four and five, days four and five in the fourth and fifth test matches, most of the crowd in the stadium were English. You know, the Aussies stopped showing up. Um, so if, you know, if it's uh, Ashes is no longer a rivalry because, you know, it's not just historically a rivalry, but, you know, the two current teams going at each other 
have to be competitive as well. If Australia end up, uh, you know, losing their fourth Ashes in five tries, um, I don't know how Aussie crowds would react to that. <laughs> well, I mean... My instinctive reaction to that as a, an Englishman who grew up watching cricket in the 1990s is, how brilliant is this? Um, obviously, I'll, I'll try and rein that in a little bit. Um, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm really not too concerned about that. I mean, there are still improvements that can be made to the way that even the Ashes is structured. Um, mm-hmm. And that, give Cricket Australia their, their due. Um, they're actually at the very front of the queue pioneering this is, is the idea of things like day-night cricket. Um, where a, a, a test match day starts at a bit more of a kind of spectator-friendly hour. And also, because the thing you can do with that is you can start also changing the way that tickets are sold. It's, it's £100, so $160 US to watch uh, a day's cricket at Lords in London. Um, that's, a lot, that's a lot of money, um, particularly in the current climate. So why not split that up and offer people session-by-session uh, session tickets? Hmm. Um, but at a, at a third of the cost or whatever. And then you might see, and obviously you know, this, these can, there's ways to redistribute these to make sure you don't get empty seats. Um, you know, that's not a problem particularly for the assets. But so even at, even at the, the very uh, sort of successful end of test cricket, such as the Ashes, there are ways in which you can, you can keep people's interest alive. I'm, do I, yes, I think England will win the series, um, but I also am genuinely not too concerned about cricket in Australia. Not because it's not perfect, and you know there are still concerns in Australia about how attractive uh, mm-hmm. Aussie rules football is relative to cricket. If you're uh, a 15 or 16 year old athlete, but on the whole, in the in the sort of list of priorities of things that need to be uh, looked at, the health of the Australian team is not at the top of my list. Okay, I suppose in terms of speaking of health of uh, the teams or the nations, you would have the top three, you know, India, England and Australia doing quite well and rest of them just picking up the crumbs. I guess that's sort of uh, unequal sharing of revenues cannot sustain for too long and also expect uh, especially Test cricket to survive. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the way that... Um cricket's income is shared or not shared um, is a really important subject. Um, mm-hmm. And this was, this was hammered home to me, at least, when I watched um, England go to New Zealand uh, mm. last winter. Uh, the series was three tests, and they, they were all drawn. It was nil-nil. It was actually far more exciting than that sounds. But the point is that uh, New Ze- Cricket New Zealand operate on a budget that is an absolute fraction of the ECBs. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, they had the advantage of home conditions, although the difference between New Zealand and England isn't as, as, as wide as between some other countries. But the fact that it, it's irresponsible and wrong for the rest of the cricket world to sit back and assume that Cricket New Zealand can continue to produce competitive teams on a budget that's a tenth of the size of the ECBs. Now, if we had 30 uh, cricket uh, test-playing nations then if one or two or three or ten started to slip a bit, it wouldn't be a problem because the chances are someone else would be coming up on the inside. When there are only ten full members and the, the overwhelming wealth is concentrated within three uh, of those nations and the rest are, as you said, picking up crumbs, then you've really got to wonder about you know, how competitive is this game going to be and for how much longer. Um, you know, we really should be saluting New Zealand, and I certainly was during that 
without patronising them in any way mm-hmm. um, for, for that series because you know, there is no way that, given the resources uh, that are behind that England team, that it should have been nil-nil. Um, and, and my fear is that if we continue to sort of ignore that uh, and there isn't a bit more revenue sharing for the good of the sport as a whole, uh, then we're going to see more and more uncompetitive series uh, and, and you know, less and less of the test cricket that we all want to see. Hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I agree with you that the number of teams playing test cricket has to be expanded. And they have to be supported, of course, as well financially. Develop um, a base of players uh, who can actually play and compete with other test playing nations rather than shrinking it down to, uh, as some people have suggested, two-tier uh, test cricket, but which is what are happening right now anyway. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's going on. In one look at the, the, the fixture calendar and uh, we'll tell you that we already have. There's no point talking about an official two, uh, two-tier system because we've already got it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, England are, are playing 10 tests against um, Australia right now. We've played India uh, and South Africa uh, immediately before that with, with the new, just the New Zealand tests to break them up. So, you know, we're already seeing enough of these heavyweight clashes. We need to see test cricket that we all want to watch featuring teams other than the, the matches between the, the big three or four. Uh, so, uh, during a research, you know, what is the logic behind um, the ICC not expanding beyond the ten full member nations, uh, in ten full member test nations? You know, there is Ireland that they look ready, definitely, and perhaps Afghanistan and few other teams. What seems to be the opposition there? Uh, have you ever uh, found a reason for that? Um, I think you're absolutely right that the, the case for Ireland's inclusion is. is building year by year, not least because they've just set up their domestic league, which is something that uh, is required uh, of a full member. Um, the simple reason, as far as I've been able to decipher, is, is, is about money, um, because at the moment, uh, the incentives for uh, the, the top nations, so England, Australia, India, and, and South Africa as well, more by virtue of their uh, excellent team than the amount of money there is behind the team, hmm. um, to invite Ireland or Bangladesh or increasingly New Zealand uh, to come and tour or equally to go and tour to those countries is the fact that it's not worth as much to them. Mm. And these national boards are obviously, you know, they have to make their money, they have to balance the, the books or ideally make some money left over to reinvest in their facilities and the team, etc. And you can sell broadcast rights to England, Australia, or India, England, or you know those those kind of matches very easily uh, for a lot of money. But you can't do the same thing for uh, you know India, Ireland. Um, so there has to be a bit more cooperation among the boards uh, to accept that 20 years down the line it might be quite beneficial that Ireland has uh, a competitive test team in the way that Sri Lanka has now. Mm-hmm. Um, but We've seen less and less, uh, as far as I've been able to discern in the last few years, of this sort of willingness to, uh, among the, the biggest nations, to go and invest their time and their energy and, and you know, show off their skills in front of these new audiences, which is what the game really needs if it's going to uh, at least maintain its current level, never mind improve. I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive in the sense that, I mean, for example, you know, all the money in cricket is through uh, TV broadcast deals, of course, and they are skewed towards the big teams. But if these big teams were to loosen up their grip on the money and expand it to 
other frontiers, eventually it just provides them more markets to, uh, you know, sell more deals. That's what... Well, yes, I, I, I completely agree. And that's, that's the... Um, I, th I fear that in practice it's, uh, it would be more complicated than that. But that's the idea, and that's the kind of uh, best-case thinking that we could do with a bit more of. But it's all very short-termist at this point. And, you know, this, from, from what I've learned about the way the, the national boards operate, you know, they really should be siblings, but instead they're competitors. And it's, it's fine to compete on the field. That's what we all want to see. But um, there should be... The need really does need to be more overarching cooperation between them to to grow the game as a whole. Because you know, without without it, then you know, no one's got any cricket to watch, right? Um, you spoke to uh, Giles Clark for your book, and also official within Cricket Australia, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, what are their views on where the game is now in terms of the money and the health of the game itself? And is there any momentum from these high-ranking officials to move the game forward, move it outside of just the top three, and also grow the revenue and the markets in the other seven nations and beyond? Um, my impression from the ECB is that they are gradually waking up to the possibility of how cricket's being consumed mm -hmm. uh, differently in an age of mobile devices, uh, tablets, etc., rather than just at home in front of the TV. However, I think that in comparison to some of the other sports, um, cricket has been predictably slow off the mark. Um, they've done a couple of quite good initiatives recently. You, you were able to watch um, uh, live streams and highlights um, of the summer, the England, the Ashes in England uh, in the summer uh, in mainland Europe for free um, through the ECB website, which is you know, a completely new thing. And I gather that they got some, uh, some good figures for that. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that the demand is there, but some of the attitudes have been a bit strange. Um, there's been a lot of effort from the ECB recently to try and uh, shut down pirate streams, Correct. which I can understand because you know this is somebody ripping off their content that you know they are they've sold. But it, it seems to be a very negative way of looking at it because instead of they should see that there is demand there and in places that, where rights aren't easily available, uh, sorry, where coverage isn't e easily available. And, you know, they should be the ones who are throwing this out and saying, you know, look what, we can, look what we can deliver you. Look how you can consume this. Look at our investment into different ways of broadcasting our stuff, not trying to make it ever harder for people to see it. Um, I, in the book, I use an example of um, a guy called Rob Moody, uh, who, uh, who's an Australian yeah. who runs a YouTube channel showing... Um, entirely illegal, as far as I can tell, highlights um, from uh, cricket matches past. And he gets a phenomenal amount of views. You know, there is such uh, an appetite and demand for cricket fans to watch highlights, archive footage of the game. Let's make this stuff available digitally. Yeah, like, there, is money, there is money in that. And, and so far, um, I think the reaction from the ECB and, and, yes, Cricket Australia as well has been a bit slow. Uh, compared to, I mean, the, the example I use in the book is baseball, but there are other sports too who are just further ahead with how can we get this kind of content and make some money off it? Because people there, they want to pay for it. You know, there's, you know, there's no more committed group of fans than cricket fans who want to, uh, you know, watch this kind of um, uh, this kind of footage that you can customise and, and view it in the way that you want to do it, whether you only want to see 
X players cover drives from a certain mm-hmm. series or, you know, every wicket-taking ball bowled by Graham Swan in the first over of a new spell. I mean, you name it. You know, <laughs> cricket fans will want to watch this stuff, and it's not available. Um, and that's, I mean, the, the, the purpose of the last chapter in the book is, is basically intended to be a slight kind of rocket in the, in the direction of those, those boards to try and, you know, see the market that, as far as I can tell, is, is just waiting for it. I guess baseball is a good comparison because, you know, similar history, shared history and all that, and the way it's played, the tradition amongst the fans and all that. Um, And I want to talk about the adoption of uh, Major League Baseball, their adoption of Internet to provide an additional uh, way for the fans to consume baseball. It also has the unequal sharing of revenues. You know, you have the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs and a couple of other teams who dominate the revenues. And teams like Kansas City and Oakland, they are picking up the crumbs and Pittsburgh, etc. So in that sense, it's very uh, similar situations. And you go into some detail uh, about how Major League Baseball adopted it adopted the internet and, you know, MLB.tv and providing yep. it on various uh, devices. So you see something of that sort uh, developing for cricket too? In a utopian sense, maybe. Um, I mean, the, the obvious comeback um, whenever you use baseball um, as, a, as, a, as a counterpoint to say, well, obviously all these teams operate under, in a single country under a single law mm. um, with, you know, it's a lot easier to corral them to sell uh, joint rights uh, than it is uh, cricket because you're dealing with nine or ten different uh, legal frameworks and all the different networks, uh, TV networks who are involved and all of this stuff. And you're, that's absolutely right. However, um, and you know, I'm not the one in the chapter who's you know, brokering a deal and suggesting this is how it should work. I'm merely pointing out a market uh, that I think exists and some indication of how other people have managed to innovate to exploit it. And so far, I would suggest that the national boards are, have shown uh, no, inc- uh, no evidence whatsoever of their ability to uh, cooperate on a, you know, on, a, on a group basis to achieve something like this. Um, and I don't really expect it's going to happen. What instead will happen is that um, each of the countries will gradually wise up to the, the size of the market available. And obviously it will be a lot bigger in England and Australia than it will be in the West Indies and New Zealand. Uh, all of the national boards will uh, work out their own digital rights deals with their broadcasters and, you know, England will make lots of money and New Zealand will make very little. Um, however, the point really is that I think there's a product there that can be sold and mm-hmm. I think um, it would benefit fans everywhere by watching it and it would suit um, the boards themselves uh, to make a bit more money. Ideally, it would be shared uh, to a greater extent than it is already, um, but I, I'm certainly not holding my breath for when that happens. You would think, you know, even Major League Baseball, when it was first mooted, this idea, there was plenty of resistance that that uh, watching it on Internet and on phones and tablets would eat away the revenue that they're going to make at the stadium or for the people that are watching it on TV. But it has been proven untrue, right? So you would think yeah. there would be yeah. leadership in cricket to make it into one giant conglomerate of... Uh, internet rights, but that doesn't seem to be happening, which is quite sh- shocking. 
No, it doesn't. And um, there is a, definitely a, a mentality where they think that um, TV and digital is a sort of zero-sum game, where if you add 50 million of digital revenue, you, mm-hmm. you lose 50 from TV. Um, and obviously, that depends partly on the skill of the boards in negotiating, because, of course, if I was a TV company and I saw that you were all going to split your rights digitally, then I'd want some money off on all of this. But I think that what we're seeing is that, um, in addition to my Sky subscription at home, uh, where I get to watch my cricket on a uh, 30-inch TV mm-hmm. or 40-inch TV, um, if I then have an hour-long commute to the office every day, I wouldn't mind having uh, an hour's highlights from the day on my tablet that I might pay a separate fee for. You know, this is all the kind of you know thinking that that goes into this. Um, whether it happens or not, I mean, I, I think what my point is, I think it will happen um, eventually. Um, and it'll happen soonest in the countries where the, the market's the biggest, like I said, England and Australia. But it, it will happen on a, uh, an individual basis, um, like we've seen that you know, TV rights are sold individually. Um, the yeah. utopian idea is, is that the revenue might be shared a bit more. Well, uh, well but um, from the track record, that's, that's a tough one to pull off. Um, of course, of course. And, I mean, and, besides... Um, Besides the uh, obvious stumbling block of, um, you know, the various cricket administrators in the various nations who could be political appointees in some cases, um, having the interest of their board only on their minds, uh, what, are, what do you see are the other barriers of entry for this? You know, beyond that, you've, you've got to design a decent product. And uh, one of the things that uh, BAM in the U.S., who, who uh, have produced the, the, the baseball coverage, have done mm-hmm. is design an absolutely wonderful uh, iPad, iPhone, uh, games console app called AppBat, which basically makes you the director of the broadcast. Um, so, as I said, if you want to pull up different player stats or change the camera angles or, um, you know, stop and fast forward and rewind, and you know, but you are basically... Sky's director or um, uh, of, of the broadcast, which mm-hmm. is uh, the kind of thing that I can you know ima- imagine would appeal enormously to, to cricket fans. So obviously, once you've you've got your digital rights deal in place, if you manage that, you then obviously need to uh, create a product that people are going to want to pay a bit extra for to receive. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that that is the kind of thing that you know uh, BAM or BAM have been going doing this for. Uh, 10 years or so, and it took them eight years before, partly until the technology was ready, but also in terms of you know, developing something that really kind of captured the uh, imagination of baseball fans. So you know, this, these things take you know, a, a bit of lead time as well to develop in, in such a way before it's, uh, before it's, as I said, captures the imagination. On the other hand, of course, cricket authorities have already got an example of how it can work by looking mm-hmm. at baseball. So it, perhaps it shouldn't take as long, but it, it will take a, a sizable investment as well to design this kind of product that is going to make cricket fans want to, to take part, even once you've gone around the kind of cooperation and the renegotiation of rights deals, etc. Once again, I want to come back to the revenue thing. I was doing this little numbers research, and Cricket is called as the second most popular sport after football or soccer. Um, but I was looking at the numbers of in terms of revenues, and it's not even in the top nine or ten sports. And NASCAR, you know, stock car racing, has higher revenue than cricket. So you would think either the administrator, cricket administrators, are just happy with the money they get right now, or they are just not aware of the possibilities. Which one is that? Um. I think it's a, that's a very good question. Um, 
I think there is a sense that the global governing body, I mean, the ICC, if you compare it to something like FIFA, the ICC is such a young body. Um, I mean, as of 15 years ago, um, it was the staff was four people and it was run out of a back room at Lords. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so when you start thinking about that, you can understand why the revenues are, are as small as they are. And the other thing, of course, is that um, you know, one of FIFA's biggest money spinners, of course, is the World Cup. And, of course, the ICC has the, the one-day World Cup and the, uh, the 2020 um, powwow as well. <laughs> Test cricket doesn't have any kind of, which, of course, we should still be talking about as the, the premier version of cricket, don't forget, mm-hmm. um, doesn't have apart from the ashes, which doesn't have the same uh, impact in the biggest market, which is obviously India, um, it doesn't have this pinnacle event that you can tile your marketing, your sponsorship, and your incredible broadcasting rights to, um, which is why the idea of the World Test Championship, which mm-hmm. has obviously been talked about on and off for a decade or so, is, is really, I think, worth considering. I mean, it's, a lot of it's artificial. Um, you know, I talk in the book about the importance of having like a long series and developing the rivalries and, and watching the kind of narrative unfold over a, a couple of months. Um, the World Test Championship, of course, would fly in the face of all of that. But it does at least have some commercial opportunities, and it gives a sense of a, an event and a climax and the idea that someone is um, leading towards something, mm-hmm. um, which at the moment cricket, you know, it kind of lacks. So that, that would be something that I think is really worth considering. After all this, uh, writing the book, so how optimistic are you that Test Cricket will continue to be in good health and will have support in terms of the fans as well as the money? Um, in terms of the sport itself, no fears whatsoever. You know, Test cricket will continue to captivate in the way that it has for 140 years. But I have serious reservations um, about the way in which the environment of the sport is handled. Um, and my big fear is that in 30 years' time, we could get a single Test match played between England and Australia uh, once a year at Lords. You know, a kind of sepia-tinged affair that people like me, you know, get all nostalgic about. But it, it just doesn't exist as a as a as a real sport, and, and that's my, my fear, and that was part of what sort of fired me up to kind of write the book. Um, I really desperately hope that doesn't happen, but I think there are some real concerns about its future. Well, on that note, Mike, thanks a lot for uh, coming on the show. We hope uh, you're proven wrong in 30 years' time. Uh, thanks for writing the book. It was a wonderful read. Thank you. Thanks very much, Subhash. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.